Welcome to Harnessing Your Wealth with Billy Peterson. As the founder and CEO of Peterson Wealth Services and a former number one ranked jockey, Billy knows what it takes to succeed. In this podcast, Billy and his team will help equine enthusiasts, business owners, and retirees understand the keys to financial freedom. Saddle up and get ready for a ride you won't soon forget on how you can harness your wealth. Welcome, everyone. I'm Billy Peterson. I'm your host, Harnessing Your Wealth. Thanks for joining us today. We have a good show, and we're going to get back to the heart of the matter, which is which is really the financial industry and what's going on in the world around us. And today, we have a special guest, John McKay from Hartford Schroeder's, who's going to be providing a lot of context around that. Thanks for joining us today, John. My pleasure, Billy. Good to be here. Yes, Sarah, we're gr- glad to have you. And Sean Peterson is with me as well, a regular here in the office. Welcome back. Happy to be here also. We're looking outside. It's dreary, cold, snowing. John, where are you at right now? I'm in our New York offices, so it's actually sunny, but a little cool. Mm. Well, we're waiting for the sun. Feels like we've been in hibernation with grizzly bears over here. The snow is not re- releasing. It's It's staying put, and it's cold tired of it so today is march 22nd and we're long into spring and today's a day where actually the federal reserve is meeting to discuss the outcome of interest rate policy and you know will they hike rates will they keep them current not do anything there's a lot of uncertainty around that a lot of difference differences of opinion i want to just lay that out for context because when the listeners are hearing this, when you're all listening to this, the Fed meeting will be long gone. So markets might react to that. And of course they're reacting daily with regards to the banking situation, what's going on in the world, the decision making around that. Should the FDIC get involved and just handle all depositors now and guarantee everyone. So there's no longer kind of any meaning behind FDIC or should we stick to the guns and you know allow allow people to take responsibility a little bit and put the bank's feet to the fire so to speak to manage their operations better let's say i'm going to basically give you context about the show right there and a little and a lot more i want to ask john just provide us background and your current role at hartford schroeders if you will just for the listeners sake Sure, I'd be happy to. And again, thanks for having me on the show. It certainly is an interesting time in markets. It's always interesting, but the last couple of weeks, I think, have highlighted um, that you never, you can never sort of anticipate exactly what's coming in markets. So, my role at Schroders is um, I run what's called our platform business. Um, we work with Hartford funds on uh, sub advising, so we manage the money in Hartford funds. Um, distributes the funds um, uh, for those strategies for us across the country. Um, so it's a longstanding partnership. I manage and oversee that. And on my team here at Schroeder's, we have a uh, number of investment strategists. So they follow the markets. Um, they're expected to have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen. Uh, we never get it 100% right, but they follow the markets inside and out. And when I say the markets, I'm talking about global markets. So equities, commodities, fixed income, currencies, um, as well as economic views on what's going on in the world. So the Fed is a big piece. Watching the Fed, following the Fed, um, trying to figure out what they're going to do is a big piece of what we do. We work with our investors, so our portfolio managers that are running the strategies. We get good ideas from them and insights from them. And then we um, work with our Hartford Funds um, partners to get that word out there. So I've been at Schroeder's now for about seven years. I was at Morgan Stanley before that and City before that. So um, thoroughly enjoy what I do and having sort of a global perspective on what's going on in the world. And the asset management level, what what are you guys managing there, Schroeder's? So Schroeder's globally manages close to a trillion dollars in assets across equities, fixed income, multi-asset, as well as alternatives. All right, good. So hopefully listeners are getting some credibility here, some context around what you guys do. Tell us about a little bit more about Schroeder's Hartford and, and the firm. Um, you know, it, how long has it been in existence? That's a really good question. So we'll have to go back in the history books a bit. So Schroeder's was actually founded 
1804 by the Schroders brothers. They were merchant bankers. Um, so it was a little bit of a different business back then. Uh, they were basically financing trade that was going by ships throughout Europe, um, as well as across to the Americas. So they were one of the entities that was financing trade of goods coming from the U.S. back to, and when I say the U.S., I mean North America in general, it was also Latin America uh, that they were working with. Um, they ended up positioning themselves in the U.K. They've been in the U.K., since the early 1830s, and the business over time evolved into an asset management business in the world as well. So we've had a um, we've had an office in the U.S. since um, actually this is our hundred year anniversary since 1923. Uh, we have a global business. Uh, we have offices all around the world in the U.K., all across Pan Europe. In the U.S., we have multiple offices as well as in Southeast Asia and emerging market countries. Um, and the partnership with Hartford Funds has been around since 2016. So we partnered up with Hartford Funds. We didn't have a U.S. intermediary distribution business. We weren't calling on financial advisors. And we saw Hartford Funds as a great partner um, to work with to give us access to those um, advisors and their clients um, and diversify our business. And it's been very successful so far. Sounds up. Uh... Sounds like it has been. I, I know we have a great relationship with Hartford and we've been very happy with what they've done for our clients for many years. Let's go a little deeper into the economy and your expectations, what you're hearing from all the uh, wise men and women you work with in the industry. What what in, in the light of the current news cycle, there are so many things to focus on and considerations and concerns and worries with regards to interest rates and global tensions, you know, war, Ukraine and Russia, the political environment is very tepid. And we have a lot of things, I guess, to worry about. We all kind of fall back in our lingo that the markets climb a wall of worry. But what, is, what are the biggest risks in your mind to the U.S. economy at this time? Sure. So if I could step back for, for, for just a minute here. So the way... We've been talking about the U.S. economy and the global economy, um, as well as the markets, right? So the markets aren't the economy. The economy is not the markets. But, you know, what happens in the economy obviously has an effect on bond yields and it has an effect on equity performance as well. Um, and so what we've been talking about is what we refer to as a regime shift um, in the economy and in the markets. And I'll get back to your question. I'm not dodging your question on what's happening in the U.S. economy, but I think it'll help provide some context. Um, and so what that regime shift is, is basically the building of inflation, which we think will be persistent um, over a multi-year, sort of five to seven, potentially a longer period of time. Um, their drivers of that inflation are secular things such as demographics, uh, deglobalization and decarbonization. Um, that will add to price pressures for the foreseeable future. That's not going to go away. It may ebb and flow. It'll go up and down, but it's going to be higher than it's been for the past 10 to 15 years. And that's going to have an impact on bond yields and what the Fed does. And it's going to have an impact on growth and sort of the length of cycles. So what I think we're dealing with right now is a symptom of that regime shift. We all know the Fed hiked rates a lot last year. Today's actually the one year anniversary of the first time the Fed hiked rates during the cycle, which is hard to believe. It seems like so long ago. But um, since the, coming from zero, they've hiked rates to 4.75%. And we can get into the guessing game of whether or not they're going to hike or hold or you know cut today. And I think the messaging around whatever they do is going to be more important than the actual action itself. But effectively, what they were doing was trying to rein in inflation. We saw the highest level of inflation we'd seen for 30 plus years. They were trying to rein that in by tr by tightening credit conditions. We really didn't see credit conditions tighten until a couple of weeks ago when we started to see problems in the banking sector. And what we think will happen going forward is that um, that Fed tightening is now going to feed through the banking system in the form of tighter bank lending standards which means less money available for consumers to borrow, or just it'll be harder to get, more expensive, and less money to borrow for corporations. It'll be harder to get and more expensive, and so activity will slow down. So that means we're heading to a slowdown. Um, it, we could go into a recession. If we do, we think it's going to be fairly mild because this isn't a balance sheet issue or an asset quality issue like 2008, 2009 was. This is an availability of credit issue. Um, and so... 
you know, that probably occurs at some point in the second half of this year. And then we'll emerge from that, um, you know, as balance sheets sort of repair themselves, credit becomes more available, and we'll go back into our growth cycle. But I think the key point to remember here is that this new regime will be sort of epitomized by shorter and faster cycles. Um, so we don't have low growth with low inflation and low interest rates. We've got higher growth, higher, more volatile growth with higher inflation and higher interest rates. That's a very different regime than what we've been in for the past 15 years. Sorry for the long answer, but I thought it was. No, I, I appreciate it. I, I want to ask you just to follow up with that. Are you saying that you're anticipating inflation to be a tougher issue to to rein in than it has been in the past? You think that you, I think I heard you say inflation is going to be with us for a while. I do. So I think it's important to provide context around it. We went through a period of time, basically after the global financial crisis, where you had developed economies. So Japan, the US, Canada, Australia, most of Europe dealing with inflation that was either zero or maybe you'd get up to one and a half percent. That was it. Um, and there are a variety of reasons for that, which we can get into. Going forward, we think you're going to see inflation in developed economies. And I'll use the US as sort of the base case for this probably in some range between three to 4%. There will be periods of time like we're in right now when it's higher. There will be periods of time during an economic contraction or slowdown when it will be a little bit lower, but it's going to average around three to 4%. So anywhere between three, two times to as much as three to four times higher than it's been in the past. The reasons for that I touched on earlier, they're the three Ds of deglobalization, decarbonization, and demographics. I'll touch very briefly on each of them. Deglobalization is was already happening before COVID um, and the shutting down of global economies. And we all know, right, China shut down, they're the factory to the world. Companies couldn't get bits and pieces to build a final product in the US or Western Europe. And so the cost of those goods went up significantly. And so all these companies are talking about reshoring, diversifying their supply chains, onshoring. Um, that all makes sense. That makes finishing a good easier to do because you can you can go to different suppliers. You're not stuck with just one supplier. The problem with that is it creates friction in the supply chain. It gets becomes more expensive to build a good. Use a widget as an example. Um, and so we think that is a trend that's not going to change anytime soon. There's not going to be another China coming into the global market that says we've got cheap labor. We can do it quickly. We're built where our infrastructure is built to help you build a good at a cheap cost, cheaper than you can do it in your home country. That's going away. India is not going to do it. And we could spend up 30 minutes talking about just India and why they're not built to be the replacement for China. So that's deglobalization. So price of goods going up and that sort of being a, a headwind that we're all going to have to deal with going forward. The second part of it is decarbonization. This isn't a feel good story about saving the planet. That's a piece of it but it's more about energy security. So Europe is the epitome of this. Russia invades Ukraine. Russia cuts off 40% of the supply of natural gas to Europe. Europe's scrambling. You know, we all remember the stories. What if it's a bad winter? Like, you know, you'll have to shut down schools and hospitals and companies and people will have to turn their thermosets down to 10 degrees Celsius, which is about 45 to 50 degrees. Could you imagine living through the winter like that here in the US? Mm. Um, and they got really lucky, really mild winter. But before that happened, they were looking at getting in liquefied natural gas from the US, liquefied natural gas from places like Morocco and Algeria, um, diversifying their energy sources. That also happens here in the US. Um, if you think about a utility, they have what's called a power stack. So they can pull whatever power source they want based on the cheapness of that power. Sometimes that's natural gas. Sometimes that's coal. Sometimes that's nuclear. Sometimes that's wind and solar. So it's about diversifying your sources of power. Decarbonization is a piece of that, but the cost of getting there is pretty high. Yeah. You've got to pull minerals out of the ground. You've got to build solar panels. You've got to improve your electricity grid. You've got to build wind turbines, hydro sources, and so on and forth, so forth. So that trend is a 10, 15, maybe even a 20-year trend that, again, is, a, um, is going to be a driver of inflation. The last piece of it is demographics. So, um, yeah, this isn't new. We know that Japan has terrible demographics, right? An aging population and not enough babies being born to come into the labor force to support that aging population. We have not great demographics here in the U.S., but certainly better than Japan and better than Europe. 
but most of the Western world, a huge piece of global GDP has bad demographics. And we're seeing that take hold here in the US over the last couple of years, COVID for, you know, either encouraged or forced people to leave the labor force, work from home, consider different options. We don't have a magic wand we can wave and suddenly bring, um, you know, working age people back into the labor force quickly. That trend, partly due to demographics, is going to be with us for the foreseeable future as well. So those three things we think lead to higher inflation than we've experienced for the last 15 years, three to four percent on average. And that's just a very different environment that we've been in for quite some time. It's been no. rough. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I I just sitting here shaking my head. I mean, that's why it's so important that we vote. Uh, <laughs> things things like that. Are some of the policies we do, we talk about that a lot on our show. So go ahead. Uh, other questions that we have for you? Yeah. So John, thanks for your insight on all that. And like Billy mentioned, the the Fed is meeting today, and I'm I'm not going to ask you what you think they're going to do because nobody knows. We've kind of got some ideas of what what they might do, but what are your hopes with Fed Fed policy, and what data points are are you looking at, or, and what are the most critical ones that that you and your team or investors should be watching? So it's a well, I'll answer your question this way. I'll tell you what I think they should do, <laughs> not that they're listening to me. <laughs> um, but if I, what I think they should do is not hike, uh, and we'll see what happens later. I could be proven a fool, but. I don't think they should hike and what they should do in both the press conference when Powell gets up in front of the mic and has to answer all the tough questions, as well as in this summary of economic projections, give themselves the optionality to continue hiking if inflation remains persistent. Um, one of the things the Fed watches very closely is called financial conditions. So financial conditions, the biggest piece of that is the ability of companies and individuals to access credit. So we touched on this a little bit earlier. So you need banks to be in healthy shape. You need companies to be in good shape. You know, you want to, as a bank, you want to lend to a good borrower. Um, you need interest rates to be fairly stable. You need the equity market to be, it doesn't have to be going up, but it you know, certainly shouldn't be as volatile as we've seen it over the past couple of weeks. Um, and financial conditions have tightened quite a bit. So I think what the Fed should do is not hike, give themselves the optionality of potentially hiking again if inflation remains persistent and that should calm down credit that should calm down financial conditions and then it just buys time it buys them room it gives them the chance to potentially come back next meeting and hike 25 bips or if things get worse cut by 25 bips or at least indicate that they're willing to do that mm -hmm. um and i think that is what i hope happens this afternoon i think hiking would be bullish because I think it would be taken very poorly by the markets and it would rapidly tight, rapidly tighten financial conditions. So there's, it's a fine line. I know it's a tough job. I wouldn't want to be in that seat with, with Powell's seat and deciding, you know, policy on one hand, their mandate is to keep inflation in check, right. And, and keep it down which is the biggest problem that we've seen in this country in 40 years. And on the other hand, they understand it can really rock the economy and uh, and they're walking that line understanding they're going to see we're going to see job losses i mean that's the definition of reigning in an economy right right pulling inflation back we're going to see job losses and now we have the politicians out there getting on their stump and uh criticizing every movie makes and and, and reality sets in a little bit and says, well, you guys were the ones who voted for a lot of these policies or cre helped create a lot of this inflation. So it's maddening to watch it. But what is what are your feelings? Like sometimes it, to me, they, the Fed's tightening, right? It takes a while to take effect. It takes a while for it to filter into the economy. So on one hand, you want them to watch it a little bit. On the other hand, remember what happened in the 70s when they thought they had inflation in under control and they didn't and it took off like a roaring fire again so what are your thoughts around all of that i know there's i know there's a lot to think about but with with regards to pausing is there a potential longer term issue with the inflation continuing there is and i think that the fed is unfortunately going to be hard pressed to get inflation back down to their goal of two percent um without to your point breaking the economy, right? Hiking rates to such a high level that activity stops, unemployment skyrockets, um, 
you know, and we go through a pretty hard landing. I don't think they want that to happen because once you break it, it's hard to fix it. And we learned that in 08 or 09. They cut rates to zero. They put all these regulations around banks. Um, you know, we always talk about the Fed as having more information than we do. That's what they do. They watch the economy. They've got 500 economists that should have the best information out there and they still make mistakes. So, um, you know, you would hope that what they do is measured. Um, you know, I agree with you, like Powell's in a very, very tough spot right now. Um, but I think it's going to be very difficult for them to get inflation back down to 2% or even within that range without doing something more drastic. And I think they also don't want to do something more drastic because they have two mandates, which are almost at loggerheads. One is controlling inflation and one is um, full employment. That is very, very difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, getting back to your um, point earlier about there's a lag to Fed monetary policy, both when they're cutting rates and they're hiking rates. Markets respond immediately. The Fed comes out and hikes by 25 bips or cuts by 25 bips. You'll see equities rally or sell off or you know, bond yields move higher or lower that day. Um, the economy doesn't react to that for about 12 to 18 months. So now we're 12 months removed from the first rate hike. We should start to see the effect of those rate hikes on the economy. And we are starting to see that in the banking sector. So I think the Fed, having seen that happen over the last couple of weeks, and maybe it was just, I hate to use the term luck of luck of timing, but the banking issues that we saw in the US are a symptom of those Fed rate hikes. And so maybe they can sit there and say, all right, what we've done is starting to have an impact on the banking sector, which is sort of the epicenter of the functioning of the US economy, the lending of money, the, you know, the, the financial system is sort of the heartbeat of the US economy. Um, and so we can pause, just let it sit for a bit. Let's see what other impacts that we can't see yet may sort of come about over the next couple of months or a couple of quarters. Right. And so what we thought would happen is not knowing what would ultimately break, something was going to break in the economy and it turned out to be the banks, um, is that when they stopped hiking, they would pause for a long time, you know, not three months, not six months, but maybe a year plus sort of let's, let's see how that plays out. Something eventually would buckle, maybe even break in the economy, and they would have to start potentially cutting. But the other thing to keep in mind is when they cut, they're probably not cutting to zero. I think we're all used to, and it's just muscle memory, when the economy or the markets ran into a problem, the Fed would, either Powell would get up there or Yellen or Bernanke before them, get up there and sort of jawbone the markets back into normalcy, right? It's okay. We got your back. Um, or they would cut rates if they needed to. 2018 into 19, that's exactly what Powell did. He hiked and then he quickly cut as the market started to um, sort of buckle under that pressure. He's going to cut eventually. The Fed is going to cut eventually, but they're not cutting to zero again. Uh, We think they cut to, I'm making these numbers up. I don't know exactly, but it's not zero. Maybe it's two and a half, three percent. They let it sit and then inflation will come back, right? After the cyclical downturn and they'll have to hike again. So it'll be higher Fed rates probably shorter, quicker cycles of them hiking and cutting. Um, But, you know, the goal would be to get inflation under control at some point down the road. We just think that point down the road is pretty far off. You're saying we're never going to see that 3% mortgage rate ever again. Never say never. Never say never. (laughs) You never know. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. It's going to be tough. What I would say to you is if we see 3% mortgage rates again, something's gone terribly wrong. Mm, Okay. Right. I know it's, yeah, I would love to have a, you know, everyone to have a 3% mortgage rate, but that means the Fed funds rates at zero, 10 year treasury yields are probably at one and something's broken in the economy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, as nice as that would be, I think that's unlikely. A lot of people are never moving again because they've locked in that two and a half, three and a half percent interest rate. That's 100% correct. But, yeah. you know, a lot of people won't have a choice, right? Yeah. Um, whether it's the expansion of their family or they're living in their parents' basement. And, <laughs> it, you, know, it, you know, there will be some inevitable movement of people just because they have to. Definitely a lot of other factors. Um, you know, a lot of people may be sitting on a, on a lot of uh, cash right now. Maybe they're nervous with what's gone on or they've been frustrated with what happened last year in the stock market. But what advice would would you give to someone that's sitting with a large cash position right now? So it's a tough one, but you know our advice has been some cash gives you flexibility, right? It's optionality, um, and you're getting paid for that optionality because short term interest rates are high. 
but we do think it's worth taking on some duration. So for your listeners that don't know what duration is, it just means extending the maturity of your investment. So you could buy longer duration or longer maturity treasuries or high quality corporate bonds or agency securities. Because if we're right about the risk of a recession just being you know, higher today than it was, say, a month ago because of what's going on in the banking sector, um, the economy is going to slow down and risk appetite will recede, which means those long duration bonds provide you a bit of a hedge, right? They're not going to return a lot, but you'll get a hedge. You'll get some positive return as risk appetites wane. Um, it's tough to take on a lot of risk in this environment, meaning equities or riskier bonds, just because of that uncertainty around um, economic growth uh, or the potential weakness of economic growth over the next sort of six to nine months. Um, but there will be an opportunity. So I'm more than happy to talk about where we see those opportunities um, potentially arising. And the other thing to think about is I could be dead wrong about everything. Right. Like we like to think we have well-educated views and we're taking in a lot of information and we think we're pretty we're pretty confident about our view, but we could be dead wrong. We could be missing something. And so staying invested, um, maybe dollar cost averaging into some of those riskier positions might be another way to still stay exposed. And that's your hedge of maybe growth turns out to be much better than we expect. And the banking issues we've seen just sort of become a quick memory um, over the next couple of weeks. Excuse me, we're almost in the home stretch for the episode. But before we cross the finish line, I just want you to know that you can contact Billy and his team at www.petersonws.com or by visiting the show notes. Now, back to harnessing your wealth. So I'm hearing remain diversified. Yep. Um, look for opportunity with, with maybe a slowing economy and dollar cost average in. Correct. Cool. Yeah, I think that those are kind of reflect exactly what we tell clients as well. I mean, this is going to be a give and take environment. We talk a lot about the good news, bad news scenario, where a lot of times the bad news actually turns into good good uh, outcome for the market because they're anticipating a Fed that can ease off that tightening cycle. So it's, it's having to play out and we're watching it in real time, what the Fed is going to do. It's so important to market direction. Do you think they were a little late getting started, John, on, on this tightening cycle? Uh, it's easy to sit here and with hindsight say, you know, my hindsight portfolio is amazing, right? <laughs> well, I'm yes. going to go out there and say they were late, dang it. <laughs> they were, I couldn't agree with you more. I think they were very late. I mean, I think the whole transitory inflation is transitory argument um, was sort of a hope and a prayer for them. They hoped it would be transient. They wouldn't have to hike rates as quickly as they could. So last year was all about catch up. Well, we uh, we haven't seen the time Fed. and time again. It was just going to yep. be transitory. Exactly. And I think the, you know, and that gets back to my point earlier about the Fed has more information than you and I and Sean have about the economy and the markets. Um, and they still got out there and said it was transitory. So, you know, they missed something. Um, mm -hmm. So even the Fed, you know, doesn't have a crystal ball. They don't know exactly what's going to happen. Not excusing them being that late. They should have at least. They could have hiked 25 bips three times in 2021 instead of hiking 475 bips last year. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's definitely something they could have done. It's disappointing they had to do it as quickly as they did um, in terms yeah. of um, tightening monetary policy last year. I, I guess I'm most disappointed in the fact that this was unprecedented amount of new cash that was printed and stimulated and pumped into the economy during a lockdown and raise the money supply by a drastic amount. And no one's had the foresight to see what was coming down the pike from that. I couldn't agree with you more. It's amazing to me, and I hate to keep on harping on this point, that they had that information, they saw the money being pumped in, they saw liquidity going up, and they couldn't have, I get that you can't be 100% certain, but they didn't have the foresight to say, well, we might be wrong on the transitory thing. Let's just do something to... Um, try and rein in the potential rise in inflation here. Yeah. And that's what we've been talking about with long-term bonds for a while. And we said, you know, the worst place to be on the yield curve uh, with with an inflationary environment taking place is the long, long duration bonds. So we had shortened everything up dramatically and even reduced exposure to fixed income. Thankfully, I mean, we, we don't 
want to get on this show just to toot our own horn, but I'm just surprised that so many bank executives who are supposed to be so smart and risk management is their game. And that's what they're hired and intended to do. And yet asleep at the wheel and investing in long dated bonds when you've got inflation going to be rearing. And, uh, and then they have to price those bonds all back to market value. And they, they have billions of dollars of unrealized losses, creating a bigger problem for the banking system. Yeah, the so my old job um, back in the day when I worked at Citibank 20 years ago was as a credit analyst. Um, so you're analyzing the bonds of companies that issued debt. I've done it for emerging markets. I was actually covering banks when we went into the banking crisis, which was fun, sort of a trial by fire there, um, as well as high yield bonds. One of the things I learned during uh, my time as a credit analyst was you always do scenario analysis. So if in a normal economic environment, how much money can this company earn to pay their debts? Um, you know, are the bonds reflecting that? in a bad economic environment, in a good economic environment, and what if rates rise or fall? So you're taught to you know, run your analysis on a bond, and then you go to the trader or the investor and say, I think this bond is worth buying, or you should sell it, it's overvalued, or and so on and so forth. Um, but bond interest rate analysis is the simplest thing in the world. It's a simple math equation. So to your point, Billy, I am shocked that some of these executives couldn't figure out that within their portfolios, which are all bonds, right? They, they are regulated. They cannot buy anything riskier than that. They couldn't figure out that if interest rates rose, um, what it would do to their portfolios and maybe you mitigate that risk, right? You put on a hedge, hedge costs money. So maybe they didn't want to lose money by putting in a hedge that they didn't need, but at the very least it would have mitigated some of the, um, the effect of the bond rate rise we saw last year and the impact on their business um, that we've seen so far this year. Yes, exactly right. Okay. So let's pick it back up right there. So with regards to all of the regulators who we as taxpayers pay pay to monitor these scenarios, do you think anything needs to change there? I'm surprised that the regulators weren't able to see this ahead of time as well. It's surprise. It, that is one of the more shocking things of this crisis, I think. And it, look, this gets a little wonky, but Coming out of the global financial crisis, if you're a bank that had more than 50 billion in assets, so 50 billion of loans on your books, or um, obviously any of the big banks that are have very, you know, very diversified books of business, you were subject to annual um, regulatory tests as well as stress tests and all kinds of hoops that you would have to jump through to sort of pass that regulator's test. In 2018, a lot of the regional banks were lobbying, um, they were lobbying, you know, the president, they were lobbying Congress to lift those rules to banks that had 250 billion in assets. And so, you know, there was sort of a, and that got approved. And so a lot of these regional banks that got into trouble were no longer subject to those strict regulatory tests. They were subject to local regulation, which is very light touch. And, you know, you, we actually don't know the kinds of questions. Those are, um, secret. They don't disclose what kinds of questions are asking them. And so someone wasn't asking the right questions. Someone wasn't pressing them um, to sort of do the right kind of stress test and potentially put on, they can't tell the bank, you have to do this, but they can strongly recommend it. And so I think there's two pieces that fell apart there. One is the regulation wasn't rigorous enough and it didn't encompass enough banks. And two is the banks may have just said, well, fine, you know, we hear what you're saying, but we're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's unfortunate. But look, the pendulum always swings, right? It swung way too far to the unregulated side back heading into the global financial crisis. Then it swung way too far probably to the overregulated side. Um, and then it started to ease a little bit. And now it's going to swing back to overregulated. Overregulated over probably is the wrong word, but more regulation than we've seen for the last couple of years. Mm. Yeah, it's a great way to point that out. I think that the regulations are there to, intended to protect people, right? I mean, government's there to protect people from getting hurt, harmed, taking advantage yep. of. But they also realize that too much regulation is not good for any capitalist economy when you're <clears throat> you're restricting what a company can essentially do in earning a profit. I mean, a lot of these banks are handcuffed right now on what they can do. Now, I don't condone any of this stupid behavior i'm just going to 
put it right there that way. I think some of these people shouldn't have jobs and I should, they should lose their jobs and us bailing everyone out all the time. I don't, I don't have a very good feeling about it personally. I think there needs to be consequence when things aren't handled properly. Cause otherwise there's no incentive to do things properly. You always know that the big daddy government's going to step up and take care of you. And I always ask the question, where do they get the money to, to step up and bail everybody out with all these different scenarios? And, and some people really, truly don't get it. They don't understand this. There's mon the money that the government has to operate with is all coming from our own pockets. It's our, it's our money that we gave them through the tax system. And, uh, they're so far in debt right now. And what they're doing is like, would you ever run your household that way? You and your spouse running up credit card debts and continue to call the credit card company to raise the limit. Or would you ever want to get back in line to having a balance in your budget? And that's the thing that I, I have a hard time with as we watch just what's going on political environment. Uh, I know we have a couple more questions for you, John. I'm just kind of ranting <laughs> with all the things that come to my mind. <laughs> what do you think an investor should look at? What are, where are the opportunities and equities? I, I, I mean, that's where most people are looking long-term and potentially now, as we go through this next six to 12 months, there's going to be great investment opportunity in a lot of these equity markets. And when you're looking here at home or even abroad and the type of securities that Schroeder's is, is looking at as far as offering the most value in this environment. Yep. No, it's a great question. And it's something that, you know, we have investors that sit in different countries around the world. We have investors that run just pure U.S. equity portfolios. They run global portfolios and so on and so forth. So you get different perspectives from all those um, investors that we have here at Schroeder's talking to them. But I'd say the one common thread that comes through is that if we're in a new regime where interest rate inflation is going to remain higher than it has for the last 15 years, and thus interest rates will remain higher, and this is going to sound about as obvious as you can get, the price you pay for a security matters more than it has in the past. So we came out of a period where you had low interest rates because of low inflation. And so, you know, the result of that was people were paying high multiples for companies that were going to generate what they hoped would be great earnings in the future. Those tended to be primarily tech companies. Some of those tech companies did extraordinarily well from an earnings and a balance sheet and a business perspective. They're all household names. We all know who they are. Um, but the valuation that people were willing to pay for them was, you know, on levels we'd never seen before. And that bubble is bursting a little bit. And we think where the real opportunity is going to be going forward is in general, cheaper valued businesses that do fundamental things for the economy and the consumer. So this is going to sound counterintuitive given what we've seen, but that's banks, that's energy companies, that's materials companies, that's industrials. Um, those were not the fun sort of stocks to own for 15 years when you had the secular growth companies, the tech companies doing extraordinarily well. Doesn't mean all tech companies are going to do bad going forward, but I think valuation is a really important um, starting point going forward. And I'll give you one hypothetical example. There's a auto manufacturer that's in the news all the time. They manufacture a very cool looking car that runs on electricity. Um, that auto manufacturer trades at a multiple of around, depends on the day, but trades as 40 to 50 times future earnings. Um, there's a giant oil company in the US. And this is not a recommendation to buy or sell either stock, but there's a giant oil company in the US that everyone knows the name. They pull oil out of the ground, they process it, they generate materials out of it, and they generate fuel for businesses and consumers. They trade at about six times future earnings. The middle is probably the right area for them to meet, right? It's not the oil company shouldn't be trading at 40 and the auto manufacturer shouldn't be trading at six. But that sort of highlights the point of there's a mispricing in the market for companies that produce and build things that we all need and use on a daily basis. And I think those are the companies that will do better for the foreseeable future. The other thing I'd highlight, given your question about um, looking abroad, is international equity markets tend to be comprised mostly of stocks like that. Um, banks in Europe, telecom companies in Europe, and telecom companies in Europe aren't the same as telecom companies here in the US. They're just different. Um, utilities, industrials, um, companies like that. 
And international equities also trade cheaper than US. So just as a starting point, and given the makeup of their markets, we think there's a really good opportunity there. I'll give you one, another quick factoid here. So over the last year, the S&P 500 is down around 13%. This is through um, March 21st. So we're recording this on March 22nd. So over the last 12 calendar months, it's down around 13%. International equities are down about 4 4%. So it's not good. Everything's down. But international has held up better. And I think the reason it's held up better is because of a lower starting point, valuations are cheaper, it just couldn't fall as much, right? So you've got less, you know, you're not as high up on the ladder. You're not, you're not going to hurt yourself um, if, you know, things go haywire and the wind blows and the ladder wobbles. You're not going to, you're not going to hit the ground as hard. Um, so we think there's a great opportunity over there. The other area that we see good opportunity is, and this again is going to sound counterintuitive, is in the US, we think looking down in cap structure. So companies that are mid-sized or small, um, we think is set up to do reasonably well. One is one piece of that is valuation. The second piece of that is um, all of the fiscal stimulus we've seen over the past couple of years. So the new bills, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is not an Inflation Reduction Act, basically a love letter to U.S. manufacturing, um, as well as the Chips and Sciences Act, as well as the fiscal bill, the infrastructure bill from 2020. Um, that's going to help these smaller and mid-sized companies that, you know, they, they thrive off that supply chain of the building in the U.S. Um, so we think there's a great opportunity there as well. They're not all going to be household names, but those are the areas that we would focus on in the equity market. I'm hearing a lot of those sectors you you mentioned they they kind of fall into the the value space, right? Yeah. So maybe looking at value over growth going forward, a little more defensive, if you will. Correct. And look, these things ebb and flow, right? The makeup of the growth market was communications, it was tech, and that was fifty percent to some degree, well, almost fifty percent of the S and P five hundred at one point. That number's come down. Right. There were um, growth companies in Asia, um, some of the big Chinese tech names, which has its own set of issues. But our value managers were actually buying them last year. They never bought them before. They, they said to me, I never thought I'd be buying a big social media company in China, which, you know, always traded at a massive premium to the market. And it got cheap enough. And so it did. So I think it's just being flexible. I, you know. I would choose value over growth, but just being flat, you still need some growth exposure. There's going to be good companies in that that just get left behind. Um, but I definitely prefer, to your point, Sean, uh, value over growth going forward. The evidence uh, factor is, as well, I would imagine, John. Yo, for sure. A hundred percent. So evidence. another quick, I'm throwing a lot of numbers out there, but uh, European equities trade with a dividend yield of about 4% on average. UK equities are at 5 so the U.S. equity market, S&P 500 trades with a dividend yield of about 1.8. That's a massive difference. Yep. Yeah. So Warren Buffett's out there buying a lot of oil companies. And uh, I think anyone who watches what he's doing, he publicly, public information, Occidental Petroleum, one of his big purchases. And of course, that's one of those companies trading at a single digit multiple. He doesn't buy a lot of tech. He, he was asked if he's going to ever buy companies like Tesla and others. And he says, no, but he buys Occidental. Those are the kind of companies in his wheelhouse. So do you think energy is still, still has a position here in this economy, even with all the movement for green energy and, and uh, you know, this administration, especially trying to almost eliminate oil companies. I think that would be their glory. What do you think about that in industry? So how much time do we have? <laughs> so we think we're in the early days of a commodity super cycle. So there's three pieces to the commodity puzzle. There's energy, which is nat gas, um, oil, both different kinds of oil, but it's nat gas and oil primarily. Um, industrial metals, so iron, uh, nickel, copper, aluminum, some really weird ones like molybdenum and you know, um, stuff like that. And then there's agriculture. And precious metals are thrown in the metals category, but they run, they tend to trade differently than industrial metals. And then there's soft commodities like cattle, pigs, wheat, soybean, corn, et cetera. Um, there is not enough supply of any of it to meet global demand. Now, oil prices will go up and down based on what OPEC does and what shale producers are doing here in the US and what Russia does with the invasion of Ukraine and so on and so forth. But there's not enough supply of any of it because you had a 10-year basically bust in commodities coming out of 08 or 09. 
um, you had a lot of huge push by investors. So this was a bit of it was regulatory, but by investors essentially saying to the um, oil as well as the industrial miners, we're not going to buy your stock unless you return value to shareholders. So those companies basically said, fine, we're not going to dig any more wells. We're not going to dig any more mines. We're not going to put any more money into keeping them running. We're just going to return value to shareholders, dividends, share buybacks, and so on. Um, so that's taken out capacity in the sector. So we think we're moving towards a period where there's going to be a massive demand tailwind for broadly speaking commodities, but especially industrial metals and especially energy. Um, and that's going to last for five to seven years. It could last even longer than that. A piece of it is what I talked about earlier, which is decarbonization. But again, I would not think about it as climate change driven. I would think about it as energy security driven. So the cost of solar panels and wind turbines has come down significantly. So if you look at the power stack that a utility uses, those um, energy sources cost about the same as net gas, which is surprising. Now, net gas can get cheaper. It can get more expensive during the summer, especially when everyone's turning on their AC. But on average, those energy sources are about the same. So there's, you know, if you're a utility company, I don't care whether you're in Texas, New York, Canada, it doesn't matter where you are, you're just going to want to diversify it. And you know, Europe is you know, sort of an extreme example where they just need energy from anywhere. It doesn't really matter where it comes from. Um, and so I think you're going to see more money poured into that, which again is going to be a tailwind to commodity prices going forward. But to get from here to a point where you can pull any lever you want, get power from wind, solar, nuclear, you know, um, oil conversion, nat gas, hydrogen power, that's 15 to 20 years down the road. So oil is going to be a still huge, um, important input into the um, energy usage in the U.S., in Europe, in the developing world, everywhere. Um, so we're pretty pretty bullish on commodities right now. Thanks for that. Yeah, thank you for that. What about kind of moving into general outlook? And we're talking rest of 2023 going into 24. What, what would you say you are looking at? Um, just outlook, outlook wise, John. So I'll give you a short term answer and a long term answer. So, and I'll answer them backwards. So, long term, I think there's a pretty good uh, growth opportunity in international equities, value equities, and small and mid cap equities here in the U.S. Um, short term, I think it's going to be it's going to be a little bit of a rough road, but potentially three to six months where. Um, you know, the impact of Fed rate hikes are having, having um, you know, they're feeding through the bank lending channel. That's going to lead to weaker growth. And so probably equities are going to hit a bit of a rough patch here. Um, they'll go down a little bit. I don't know by how much. Um, and so I think it's, again, gets back to your question earlier, Sean, about what do you do with that cash? I think you leave some of it in cash just as, you know, optionality for those opportunities to present themselves. I think it's worth taking out a little bit of duration uh, risk in your portfolio as a hedge against an economic downturn. Um, but once we come out of that patch, there's going to be a lot of good opportunities um, in the market um, over the next sort of three to five years. Yeah. And I think that's what we, we share the same thoughts. We've been talking to clients, you know, be ready for a slowdown. Economic slowdown is coming. We've, we've kind of seen that in, in equity markets over the last year, seeing that tilt into real estate prices starting to come down. And now you're seeing that trickle into the economy with, you know, job layoffs. You're seeing that almost every day in the news now, and it, that comes down to the the consumer. So we're saying, look, next three to six months, seeing some slowdown, but if you're a long-term investor, it's going to really open up some windows of opportunity for you. Then, yeah. I mean, the yeah. other quick thing I'd say, and I'm sure your listeners have heard this saying before and you guys have heard it too, but um, the best opportunities in the market present themselves when it feels the worst, right? Mm -hmm. So the negative headlines with the banking crisis, with the job you know, loss headlines are coming. They've been coming, but there's going to be a point at some, I don't know when, couple of months from now, you know, at some point where the headlines are just awful, right? That's the time when you start legging into the market. Very hard to do. It feels like you're sort of the only person out on a limb, but that's when the best opportunities present themselves. Couldn't agree more. We're always yeah. saying be contrarian, do yep. what others don't want to do and typically works out beneficially yeah. for you. For sure. Yep. That's a great, great way to kind of finalize that. Is there any big 
topics that you think are going to be uh, conversation pieces as we go into next year? And uh, everyone's already talking about the election. I know we don't want to get into election stats, but are there any what are the overriding themes that are going to be talked about and bantered around in the media? So I think, look, one of them we've seen for the past couple of years, which is the sort of growth of tensions between the U.S. and China. That's not going away anytime soon. And our view is um, that is going to remain an ongoing source of tension for global trade um, and just geopolitics in general. I mean, not to get into the sort of the weeds of Xi's visit to Putin this week and what's going on with Russia, Ukraine. So that's going to add sort of an element, a risk premium um, that's going to ebb and flow in markets over the next year. The election, not an expert on who's going to win and couldn't even begin to guess um, how that election is going to turn out. But that's going to become a big issue at the end of this year, heading into next year and what their platforms are. Right. Is it more fiscal spending? Is it tax cuts? Is it tax hikes? Um, what does our international policy look like? So those are going to be issues the market's going to have to grapple with um, heading to the budget as well is a big one. And talking of the budget, you got the debt ceiling issue, which is really going to come to a head, we think, over the summer. It's probably June, July is when it's really going to start hitting the headlines of potentially the markets. My view is that the politicians will come to their senses and they'll reach an agreement on some compromise. But that's an issue that I think will um, you know, drive markets a little bit as we head into the summer as well. Lots to watch and be be patient with and obviously looking forward to all these things coming down the pike. We really appreciate your thoughts today, John. Give us a, our listeners a lot to think about and ponder and, and really just helps us keep a level head. We've gone through all kinds of scenarios uh, in, in the last 100 years or more of these kind of things that have even been worse. I know people look at the doom and gloom all the time, but remember, that's what sells. The media likes to focus on all the negativity. So thanks for the comments. We appreciate all you being here with us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Everybody out there, thanks for joining us today. And we will uh, talk to you again next time. We have another great speaker lined up for the show. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Harnessing Your Wealth with Billy Peterson. Before we declare the race official, please click the follow button so you can be notified when new episodes become available. For more information about today's show, please check out the show notes. Visit our website at www.petersonws.com or give us a call at 801-475-4002. Once again, thank you for listening. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Peterson Wealth Services. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.